Open your Bibles to Exodus 20. We continue our series, Redeemed for Relationship, walking through Exodus together. And today we have a very short passage. The passage today is Exodus 20, verse 3. that says, You shall have no other gods before me. And those few words speak volumes to us. You shall have no other gods before me. And again, you remember that you isn't plural as if it's just this general blanket command that we could kind of attend to or not, but it's you singular. One of the main points being that God wants you individually to know that he speaks this command to you, mentioning you by name. So you, where you are, who you are, God tells you, have no other gods before me. It's, it's looking us in the eye and speaking it to us. And obviously it's the first of the Ten Commandments. And we'd expect that God would give it first for a reason. It must be first in order and first in importance because it's basic, it's the root of all the others. They build on it and grow out of it. We have to own and have the true God before we can do any of the other commandments. It's fundamental. That's why he starts with that short but powerful, profound command. This one speaks of the fear of the Lord. But you remember in scripture, that is the beginning of wisdom meaning there is no wisdom unless it begins with the fear of the Lord. That's command one. This one speaks about relationship. The others speak of ways you live because of that relationship. So God's saying, have that relationship right with the true God, not the false gods. So in a nutshell, it means you must have God, the true God for your God, and you must not have other gods, the false gods for your God. True religion isn't both and. It's not God plus other gods. True religion is either or. God says either you worship me alone or you don't worship me at all. Or children, your parents are always telling you to, to share. And sharing is something very, very important. We share our toys with our brother, sister. And yet there are some things we don't share. God's saying there's some things you don't share. Like you don't share a Hershey's kiss. You know, it's just, it's individual. It's hard to share your bicycle seat, unless it's one of those big ones. Normally, you don't share a secret. There's things you don't share. Even more fundamentally, God says, you don't share the love and loyalty 
you owe me to any other God. You don't share it and divide it up. So three questions. Who's the God who speaks this command? What does he command us and how do we do it? So who's the God who speaks this command? And this makes all the difference because the command doesn't just plop out of nowhere. It doesn't just appear from an unknown God. We know this God. C.S. Lewis speaks about how we tend to view God in our culture. It's a wonderful quotation, he says this in English culture, in our culture, uh, an impersonal God, well and good, we like that, a subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our heads, better still, a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all, but God himself Alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. Or we never meant it to come to that. Or still, supposing he found us. Our culture will speak a lot about spiritual things, being spiritual, a God of our imagining, even a private, personal God for me It makes us feel better, it helps us cope and manage life, draw on power, but the real God, the public God, the God who has authority, the God who steps into our world, that God, we're real and comfortable with that. You see, the God who utters this command isn't vague and shadowy, he isn't like an empty cup and we just fill him up with the content that we want. Rather, he's the living and the true God, the real God who's pulled at the cord, who's approached, who's found us. You see, it's possible to be really sincere in our worship and be dead wrong in our worship. Our culture speaks a lot about faith. And our culture speaks, in essence, of faith in faith But you see, real faith, saving faith, has a definite, a certain content to it. The God in whom we believe is the important thing. It's who he is. And the God who speaks this is the God of the Exodus. And that's why it's so powerful that it comes here after all we've learned about him. He's taught us in his words and his deeds this crash course, these visual aids. What is God like? The preamble to the Ten Commandments are so important. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before 
me. I am the Lord your God. Remember, that's how he identifies himself to Moses when he calls him to go to Egypt. Moses doesn't want to go and he's afraid of what people are going to say. He goes, well, what if he asks me your name? Who do I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. What a statement, a declaration. And what he says there is, first of all, I'm the great God. I'm the creator God. I'm the self-existent God. Everything else finds its existence in me. That's who sent you. Who's Pharaoh next to me? But then God shortens his name to Yahweh, the Lord, which becomes his personal name, his, his covenant name. And what God's saying by that is, I'm not just the great God, but I am the gracious God. I'm the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God. Notice here, I'm your God. What a statement, I'm your God. This is the real God, the creator and the covenant maker, the great one and the gracious one, the transcendent one and the imminent one. He's the one speaking here. And he backs it up by all that he's done. You know, the main point of why God led Egypt and his people through 10 plagues, he didn't have to do that. It was, it was a crash course in who he is as opposed to the gods of the nations. In 10 plagues, he completely unravels any pretenders, any rivals to him. And that's what he's trying to publish abroad. I am God and there is no other. And so he utterly defeats systematically, one by one, the gods of the most powerful nation on earth who would then have the most powerful gods. And if he defeats them, he defeats all of them. So he defeats the gods of the fields and the rivers, the light and the darkness, the sun and the storm, utterly undermines them. And in doing that, he's saying, look to me, don't look to those other gods. I know they draw you to them, but don't do it. They're not real. And just look at who he is in all of what we've looked at so far. He's a God who chooses a people, not because they're important, but because he loves them. He's a God who makes covenant promises, and even when it's hard, he keeps those covenant promises. He's a God who shares in the sufferings of his people. He visits them in bondage in Egypt. He's the God who fights for his people tooth and nail. He's the God who redeems his people, covering them with blood so that the destroying angel passes over them. He's the God who redeems them from the power uh, of slavery through the Red Sea when they could do nothing, they were trapped. He's the God who reveals himself in fire and in cloud, fire because that's the symbol of holiness because it just attracts us to it even as the beauty of God's holiness and yet it's also dangerous because sinners before a holy God, it's a dangerous thing. He's utterly pure 
and yet he appears as a cloud showing his glory to us, yes, but doing it in a way that doesn't disintegrate fallen sinful man veiled in a cloud to approach, to draw near, to be close. The God who wants to be in relationship with us, he carries us on eagle's wings and brings him to himself. And now he declares his will for us on the mountain, making us his people and telling us how redeemed people live in gratitude to God and to grow to know God better, to love him and be loved by him. That's the God who speaks this. Not just any God, it's that God. So we look at that God and say, it's right for you to say this. Why wouldn't you say this? You are worthy of this kind of devotion. Who else measures up, even gets close to you? You are great and you are gracious. Yes, you're the God we want to worship. You've done more than pull at the cord or approach or find. You see, it looks to Jesus, who's the great I am, who came down the mountain to us to become one of us. Yes, you're worthy of this worship. So what does God command us here? What does God command us here? Um, God demands, he asks, but he demands each of our unqualified, exclusive devotion, undivided hearts that are wholly given to him. That word before me could be a bit confusing. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, We could read it as if God were just saying, I want to be first in the rankings amongst all the other gods you have. Just don't let them get more important than me. I want to be number one over the other legitimate deities you also pay your allegiance to. Now, if this were what Moses, what God were saying, uh, it would not have been controversial in the ancient world. It wouldn't be controversial today. Our, Our culture likes that. But in reality, this command was unprecedented in the ancient world. So, so that phrase, before me, doesn't mean what's, what we could infer from it. You see, Scripture uses that phrase, before me, sometimes in relation to time and sometimes in relation to space. So in terms of time, God could be saying, as long as I exist, you shall have no other gods before me. In relation to space, he could be saying, wherever I am present, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that do for us? Since God will always exist, and since God is everywhere present, what God is saying, you shall have no other gods, period, at any time and at any place. This means God isn't just our, our, our God on Sunday mornings, but our God at all times, every day of the week. When life is going smoothly for us, and when life is really hard, 
He's our God at all times. He's the God of our suffering. This means God isn't just our God when we're at church or with our church family, but he's our God everywhere, at home, school, around those people, at the ball field, at work, on vacation. He's our God when we're in public and people are around us, and he's our God when we're in private and no one's watching. He's always our God. We're quorum Deo, we're always before the face of God, always. Furthermore, it carries the idea of in opposition to or against, before me, like opposed to me, because effectively, if we bring any other God into the equation, it's an affront to him. You see, to give our heart to any other God is to reject God as God. It's to replace God as God. God takes it personally because God is a jealous God. The covenant, when he says, I am the Lord your God, it's a marriage covenant. And that's when you really don't share. It's that vow, forsaking all others. I will love you in poverty, in wealth, sickness, health. Calvin takes that and says, look, to cherish another God is like being a wife who shamelessly invites her adulterer into her home in front of her husband. Unconscionable. Or it's as if a wife were to say to her husband, hey, this is so-and-so, I mean, I love you still, but I also, I, I, I love him too. And so I was thinking, maybe we could be together. It's, it's, it's that devastating. God is a jealous God. He wants our undivided affection. He doesn't share it. It's a marriage covenant. So what does God want then? Well, the best commentary really is Deuteronomy 6. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 6, you know, in Deuteronomy 5, you have another version of the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy 6, you have the explanation. And, and, and Moses gives the heart of the commandments in verses 4 and 5 in Deuteronomy 6. And it was called the Shema. And Israelites would quote it, recite it in the morning and the evenings. It focused their life. Jesus builds on that when he gives the first and greatest commandment. And so the Shema, meaning hear, but hear to obey, means hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one, meaning there is no other. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All of it, all of it. It's love. To have God is to love God. So the first commandment requires us to love God with all that we are, with all that we have, with all that we do, with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And this love is fueled by knowing Him. The more we know Him, the more we love Him. This love entails choosing Him. It's a decision 
I'm choosing you as my God, not the other gods. You know, Joshua, at the end of his life, got Israel to renew their covenant, you remember? And he recites all God's grace in redeeming them from slavery and says, look, choose you this day whom you will serve. And as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. There was a choice to be made. Love demands a choice. We decide to fear God not to, and to forsake all rivals to him. So verses 10 through 15 spells this out a little bit more in Deuteronomy 6. And so God goes on to say, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill and cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst and he's jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And so there's just this real temptation. He goes ahead and prophesies it and says, you're gonna get to the promised land. When we get to the promised land, life's gonna be a lot better. And you're gonna be tempted just to forget God. You're gonna forget his grace. It's not gonna be alive to you. And you're going to be tempted to follow other gods, gods that seem a bit more helpful in your new situation, more practical, maybe more relevant, more updated, more modern. It's just going to be appealing. Don't follow them. The first thing you need to do is remember the Lord. Remember his grace and love. And then daily refuse to buy the false promises of the idol gods around you. That's your constant, constant dynamic. Well, Calvin, you know, looks at this command and he groups God's desire for us in four headings, how we keep that command. He says, first, adoration. We practice worshiping God, which is on public worship, in our private devotions, and in our obedience, which is a spiritual service of worship. We practice trusting God, like depending and relying upon Him, not leaning against other things when life gets difficult. We practice invocation, to call upon God when we have needs, to seek help from Him. And we practice thanksgiving to cultivate a heart of gratitude for all his good gifts that we travel up the sunbeam to the sun. And so in real life, we have to ask ourselves those questions like, who or what am I treasuring, really? When I don't have to think about anything, what is it that I think about? In whom or what am I trusting? Like when things get tough, where do I go? To whom or what am I asking for help? For whom or what am I most thankful? Uh, These questions help expose if we have a theoretical faith or a living faith in the real God. 
So we look at our, our world and our lives. God wants us to put off all the false gods, all the rival gods, all the God substitutes that are always coming at us, inching closer and closer. We can't get away from it. And so a few things we resist, we resist pluralism. And we live in a pluralistic, not just in, 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 in fact, but a pluralist, a pluralist society in philosophy. Our culture is offended by our exclusiveness. To say that they're one God is offensive to our culture. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, the British playwright, said, there is one religion, though there are a thousand different names for it. I mean, that's the sentiment of our culture. And we look at that and we say, it's just not true. It's not true. There's only one God, and he alone is the redeemer of sinners. He alone is the author of good news, not just good advice. We can look at another religion and say they offer some helpful points. I mean, common grace. But we look at them and say, you're not a valid road to God. There's nothing of the Christ and the cross. We resist how our culture enthrones reason. Our culture enthrones reason in such a way as to put it as arbiter and judge over God and what God can ask and what God can do to dictate what portions of scripture could be true and what is not. To say the supernatural can't happen. A 17th century writer said, reason is the divine governor of man's life. It's the very voice of God. That's not true. Faith is not opposed to reason, but reason is not God. Nietzsche said God is dead. The reason he said God is dead is he's just calling your bluff. You're living like God doesn't matter. Just say God doesn't exist. You think you can figure life out and do life on your own terms. That's what culture is like. It's living by reason. Third, in addition, we resist our culture's deification of experience. And that's really where we are right now. The, 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 the weird thing that our culture says that, that really connects with us is that in order to be authentic, you have to follow your strongest feelings. And we, none of us wants to be disingenuous or inauthentic, but really my strongest feelings at the moment, that's the litmus test of my authenticity. That's where I get my identity is by my subjective strongest feelings. That's where we are as a culture. All these movements press in on us and erode living faith in the living true God. We resist that as a people. But at the same time, it's not just out there, it's in here. That's our biggest problem. We got to be increasingly aware of the idol-making nature of our own hearts. Sometimes we're just not aware. We're driven by desires and wants that are out of proportion. We make good things, good gifts of God into ultimate non-negotiable things in our lives. We're doing it all the time. You can test your emotional life, your relational life, your thinking patterns, and you can discern that. You know how it is. An ancient... Uh, commentators spoke of a three-headed idol out of 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are powerful drives that want to assume command in your life. Packer speaks of an unholy trinity 
of sex and shekels and stomach, or of pleasure, possessions, and position, De Young adds, food and family and football. It doesn't matter what it is. We have a drive to worship creaturely things and not the creator. Underneath all of that is one, our own self-centeredness, but also there's a very active devil who aims to use your desires to disconnect you from the author of all good and to live life independently from him. And that's where he's moving you. He's moving you not to freedom, but to slavery. Just think how this affects us. Think of that anxiety you have that sometimes is totally right on, but sometimes it's just out of proportion. Or think of that anger. Think of your compulsiveness, your control, or your fear. We need to take note and stock of our emotional life. It's a signal to what's going on in our hearts. God says, you just don't function well if I'm not right in the center. If you don't view everything I've given you as a way to glorify and enjoy me. If it gets disconnected from that, it's gonna cause problems in your life. Worship me. Well, how do we do that? How do we, like, it's so tough. You see, the, how do we obey this command? This is where we live every day. It's the first command, it's the relational command. So how do we obey it? You know, Romans 8 says, the law's weak because of sin. It can't produce what's, what the law requires. Romans 7 says, when the law came, sin sprang to life. It's like that Coke bottle that's shaken up and all the fizzy comes out. It shakes up your native sin. Romans 3 says, the law condemns you. So that's where we are. How do we develop a heart that loves God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? We look at the Christian life as that, like a diesel train that comes through Tupelo. And for that, that, that train to operate, it needs fuel to drive it. And it needs tracks on which to run. And the grace of the gospel is the fuel that drives the train of the Christian life. And the tracks are the rails on which it runs. The rails on which it runs is the law of God. And we show God our gratitude and love and affection for him. We've got to have the gospel living and alive in us. And what happens is sometimes we grow loose to it. It becomes something we're overhearing. But think for a moment of some experience that was much better than you expected it to be. Maybe you went on a vacation, it just, it just totally surprised you for how much fun you had. One of the things for me is when we went to see Machu Picchu for the first time in Peru, and we'd always heard about it. We lived in Peru, and we, you know, we, we always kind of put it off. It couldn't be that good. But then we finally arrived, and there's been few places like that that really blew me away, but I just had to sit down, stunned at that beauty of that place. And you see, the summons here in this command is, be overwhelmed by the grace of the gospel every day. 
Because in the gospel, Yahweh didn't just come to the mountains and shake it with rumbling and lightning and cloud. That was a faint glimmer of what God would do when God sent I am to robe himself in flesh and dive into our misery and filth and shame and guilt and and take it all to himself and pay for it at the cross and undo it and break the sentence of our sin and the power of the evil one and rise victorious from one the great. The great I am, Jesus intentionally said I am when he came. That's the gospel who came down, who approached you, found you, did more than tug at the cord, but gave himself for you. What idol has ever served you at all? And Jesus served you to the uttermost. Our idols use us and demand our service. And Jesus laid down his life for us to give us God to give us the self-existent one, to make the Father our Father, to give us hope and life, that all good gifts are much better when they're found in him. Our idols enslave and Jesus frees. We don't have to be subject to our strongest desires that want to rule over us. We can be free to worship God and to know God and to receive everything from his hand. Therefore, we can rip out our idols and we can replace them with Christ, the living Savior who gave himself for sinners. Might we do that? Might we be hard on ourselves? Might it hurt, but hurt in a good way that we wrench them out like plucking out an eye and cutting off a hand because we know what we've got is better. And what the evil one would love is to disconnect us from vital union and experience and love in the God who made us, takes care of us, and loves us. And this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're free to be in communion with the God who made us. And that's flourishing, and that's how we're designed to live. May God add his blessing to you. Let's pray.